Okay. Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Verse 16. How prophetic are you? <laughs> so chapter 1 verse 16. So we stopped at the word everyone who believes. So we are demonstrating something that you can pick up in reading. So we, we read the entire text, but you can teach your mind to follow his thought pattern without the add-ons. Uh, because of the context of the book, the letter that he's writing to the Roman church that pertains to Gentiles, Jews, law, grace, uh, in, in an effort to explain God's salvation plan, um, he has to refer to Jews and Gentiles, grace, law, all the time. From where we're sitting, him saying, um, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, is obviously no longer of great importance or interest, interest when you're reading the text to get to the truth of it. There is a study, and it's part of our study, to see how in today's life, the reality of Gentiles and Jews and the reconciliation, how it works. But if you're reading it for yourself, you can leave out, you can teach your brain not to factor in for the Jew and the Gentile. What does it do? It's like um, creating space. You know when you have to clean your um, memory on your phone or your computer and create space? Create space if you learn to not factor those things in. Mm. So, let's have a look at what we did here. We rewrote the um, flow of the text. Can you see from there? No. Okay, well, I'm going to read it. We rewrote it so that um, it follows a specific pattern. Thought pattern, yeah. Thought pattern. I'm just going to read it. Okay. The gospel of Messiah, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for in it the righteousness of God is revealed and the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So you see we went through 16, 17, 18 and we left out parts of the sentence or the, or the verses because we want to piece together what he's actually saying. Mm -hmm. So the gospel of Messiah is the power of God to, to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Did anybody read that before and realize that the emphasis is placed on for in it the righteousness of God is revealed? Anybody realize that's the emphasis? Now we have just looked at one of the biggest, most important truths in not only in the book of Romans but in the entire Bible. It says that in the gospel of Messiah, the righteousness of God is revealed.
is big. He's telling us right in the beginning of the book of Romans, he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of, righteousness of God has to be the biggest concept in all of creation. Bigger than his power, bigger than his might, bigger than his authority, bigger than his rule, because in the end, all rule and authority is ended. Mm. And what will remain is the righteousness of God. When Messiah hands back the kingdom to the Father, this is the summing up of all things. And the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, did anybody in your entire walk in the church teach you to think about the gospel of, as the righteousness of God being revealed? Now, we've made the gospel... God wants to save people. That's what we made the gospel to be. When this is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel actually has a far greater purpose and truth to it than, than we actually ever realized. And something else is revealed. The wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So not only is the righteousness of God revealed, the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of men is revealed. Eternal life to those who continue as opposed to those who are self-seeking. Eternal life to those who continue as opposed to those who are self-seeking. We just lifted up out a, a huge, gigantic truth. So those who continue in faith, the opposite of it, the, the reciprocal of continuing in faith is self-seeking. So if eternal life is given to those who continue, as opposed to self-seeking, then... What's the natural consequence of, be, of, of becoming self-seeking? Living a life of self-seeking, what's the consequence? Well, we don't believe that anybody can lose salvation, but salvation is given to those who, according to God's eternal knowledge, has continued and not, and not became self-seeking. So another definition for what eternal life is going to, what salvation actually is. Self-seeking literally becomes the unforgivable sin then. Because yeah, you are self-seeking, not obeying the truth. That's big. Big. Okay. Not obeying the truth. Which truth? Is he saying we should obey every word in here, otherwise we are in trouble? He's, he's, he's making truth singular. He's basically saying there's such a thing as the truth. And that we should continue in the truth. Okay. Keep it in mind. It's very important. Okay. So, the wrath of God against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, eternal life to those who continue as opposed to those who are self-seeking, not obeying the truth. On the day of judgment, the wrath 
and righteousness of God is revealed. So, the day of judgment is not just there for God to sort out everybody. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, is there to reveal the wrath and the righteousness of God. that he may be justified in his words and may overcome when he is judged. So God is going to judge. What did Paul do in quoting this scripture. We're going to have a look at that quote. Mm. Can you do that for us, please? Okay. So, in so, Romans, chap no. mm? Romans chapter 3, verse 4, the quotation is that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But it's quoted from Psalm 51. So, obviously, if you look at the text, the you is... In capital letters, so it has to refer to God. But then Take a moment. He says, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Okay, now explain it. Okay, Psalm 51 verse 4 reads against you you only have i sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found when you speak and blameless when you judge see paul misquoted the psalm mm, caught out. and no one corrected it over all these years they just in the King James, I'm sure in some of the other translations they would have helped Paul out a bit. Okay, what happened? You can, you can do it. Huh? Okay, so in the psalm, this is, this is quoted by David and Paul because this has to do with the righteousness of God. Judgment Day... So, can you see that we are starting to link this study of Romans with where we've come from? How will we be judged according to what? Will we be judged according to works? We're linking it with the, uh, the principles that we've been teaching. Principles of uh, life governing uh, sanctified speech and action. Mm. Okay, keep all of that in mind. So, this goes all the way back to us looking at the judgment day, the judgment way, all of that, right. Now, on the day of judgment, the righteousness of God is revealed. And on that day, it will be the people versus the God. So not only do they rebel on earth and he eventually just destroys all of them, 
Now there's a show off and a show down in heaven. And how will we know who's right and who's wrong? He's not going to do it like he did with the fight on earth. He uses his almighty power to cancel out his enemy. But on this occasion, judgment will be according to who kept their word. Because remember, if he is going to be the judge of all, then surely we are allowed to ask the question, according to what does he have the right to judge everyone and everything? What makes his judgment just and righteous? So we can assume that most people, and especially <coughs> believers of every kind, would in their minds have the notion, the idea that, well, he's allowed to judge because he's God. And we might even have the notion that he's good, that's why he can judge, or he's right, or he's righteous. But in reality, in practice, what will happen to the human if they truly believe that? What happens to a human being that truly believes God is right? Just right. Everything he said is right. What happens to the human mind, the human heart, the human life when a person believes with all his heart and puts it into action that God is just right? That is right and that is good. What happens? What happens when the human assumes and decides that everything God said must be right? Everything that he had done, all his action must be right. Now think about the reality of this. This is not actually what humans believe. This is not what Christians believe. Christians don't believe that everything God did is right. Not in reality. They say they do. But people question God's words, question His judgments, and question His actions. We question it. Elijah, have you never questioned why God does things the way He does? Thank you for saying that. Hops. <laughs> so, because we don't understand his ways, it gives us kind of a leeway to question his way. How dangerous could that potentially be? Very much so. Okay, so I'm sure we're getting the picture. Even us, in the walk that we've in, we might think we have fully decided that God is just right in all things. We must make sure that that's true. Every word, every action must be right because He's God. 
if it wasn't right, then he would not get to judge in the end of the day. Well said. Anyways. So. That he might be justified in his words and may overcome when he judges. For all have sinned and every mouth stopped. Why does it say every mouth stopped? See, by just taking out some of the pieces that wasn't part of this, we're seeing Paul is saying something very clearly. He's really saying that all have sinned and there will be a time when God's righteousness is revealed and every mouth will be stopped. And God's not going to do it by forceful power. But how is God going to show on that day that he's right? How? That was rhetorical. How is God going to show on the day of judgment that he was right and every other thought, every other opinion, every other preference was wrong? There has to be a way for him to prove it. Just because he's almighty, he doesn't have the right to just say, well, you, have to, you just have to believe me. He has to prove. So how will the righteousness of God be revealed? See, it doesn't work like this, because when we argue as humans, we think that I win if I can prove that you did something wrong or you said something wrong. So we have this kind of mindset that if I can prove you wrong, it makes me right. Mm. Now that's not what he's going to do. Although he's going to, although it says that all have sinned, that's not the basis on which he becomes right. Yeah, because it says, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? For then how will God judge the world? For then how will God judge the world? So somewhere, most people have this idea that God's going to judge the world by proving that everybody else was wrong. Think about it. Wasn't that what we thought? But isn't that even how the world understands holiness as well? Hmm? He's just, whatever we are, he's everything that's not that. So our unholiness demonstrates his holiness. Exactly. So actually, the world's understanding is that he's holy because he's just not us. So we're determining his holiness. Mm. And somehow, the world also thinks that we are going to determine his righteousness because we are sinful, it proves that he's right. He's not going to judge that way. He's not going to judge by just saying, because how does he prove his righteousness? How does he prove it? By proving our unrighteousness. That's the way humans do things. And he's not going to do it like that. So how is he going to demonstrate and establish that he's righteous? So that's part of the big theme in the book of Romans. Did anybody notice this? Big theme. Okay, now. All have sinned and every mouth stopped. 
For by the law is the knowledge of sin that witnesses that the righteousness of God apart from law is revealed. Okay. We are now already deep into chapter 3, right? So, By the, by the law is the knowledge of sin that witnesses that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, freely justified, uh, freely justifying by His grace through the redemption that is in Messiah Yahushua. So freely justifying by the grace So He's freely justifying by His grace. Freely justifying by His grace. So there's judgment against the unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, there's judgment against it. Yet, He freely justifies by His grace. It's sounding less and less like a fair judgment to me. Or like a logical one, even. Yeah. So He's going to freely justify by His grace some and uh, reveal his wrath against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And yet it says, all have sinned. So judgment, Dave, I don't know about you, it's starting to look more complicated than I thought. No wonder humanity came up with this idea that He's going to judge according to what we've done right and wrong, because that's easier to understand, right? Mm. Or even for Christians, we go like, well, he's just going to judge you, believe in Messiah or not. Is that true? Okay. It's the knowledge of sin by the law that witnesses that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, freely justifying by His grace, through the redemption that is in Messiah, whom He set forth to demonstrate His righteousness. There is that word again. Do we see how often He's referring to His righteousness over the course of now three chapters? So He says, in the gospel of Messiah, His righteousness is revealed. Then it says, He set forth Messiah to reveal His, judgment, uh, his righteousness. Or to demonstrate His righteousness. How does He demonstrate His righteousness by sending His Son? So we all know that's what He did, but how? How does it work? JP, is it an easy one to answer? No. <laughs> For the promise comes through the righteousness of faith according to grace. That's an easy sentence. The promise comes through the righteousness of faith according to grace. Elijah, easy one. Yeah. What do you think, Ayla? That's an easy one to understand. The promise comes through the righteousness of faith according to grace. Okay, fair enough. Join <laughs> the club. Welcome. Okay. Um, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Okay, so something in all of what he has said boils down <laughs> to, now there's something I can relate to, 
The promise is sure to all the seed. He's done all this that I don't understand, but uh, thank goodness. Um, the promises. And then I'm, I'm just going to go look for the promises because now I know exactly what to do. Yes, there's a promise for me. If I ask anything in his name, he will do it. He will do it. Lovely. Mm. Tried it. Don't know if it worked. Didn't look like it. Anybody tried that in their early days? Go like, well, it says it. I was just going to believe it says mm. it. I don't know why. Okay, so anyway, now we know that the promise is true and sure to all the seed. And imputed to us who believe in him who raised Yahushua, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. Raised because of our justification. Because of our justification. Raised because of our... Okay, anybody uh, want to explain that to me? <laughs> Go for it. It's rhetorical. <laughs> no, I said go for it. <laughs> <clears throat> By which we have peace with God and access into this grace in which we stand. Okay, so now there's this reoccurring dynamic of grace. Are you noticing this? Mm. This grace in which we stand. Okay, so obviously that's something you have been walking with the Lord for quite a while. By now you know how to stand in grace, right? Because we have to practice it daily, so Ooh, we're not doing our jobs. They don't even know how to stand in grace yet. <laughs> what have we been doing? Okay. So, we have peace with God and access into this grace in which we stand. Okay, so we can see that we first have to have peace with God, so there is a peace accord that needs to be in place so that we can now have access into grace and stand in grace. Right? How often during the day do you guys by now think of standing in grace? That has to be in place on some level, right? Okay? Okay. Please, that's, that's good. Okay. The grace of God and the gift by, by the grace of the one man abound. Did. Abounded to many. Okay. The grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man abounded to many resulted in justification so that those who receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more, much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Okay, so we ended where in chapter 5, right? Mm. Okay, so we've just plotted a thought pattern that entails righteousness, the righteousness of God, grace, and the promise to the seed. And this spreads over five chapters. Okay. Well, not only five chapters, but yes. It actually carries all the way through. But do you see that um, there's a thought pattern here? Do you see it? So, take a moment, ask yourself, what is the righteousness of God? 
because all of this says he's going to prove it. And it's got something to do with judgment. Right? The righteousness of God. Okay. Now, he who knew no sin. So, in the gospel of Messiah, the righteousness of God is revealed. So, if I want to answer the question, I've got to go back and go, like, what is the gospel of Messiah? Because mm -hmm. the righteousness of God is revealed in it. Before we carry on, did you notice that sin seems to be a major theme from the onset, the outset of uh, the letter to the Romans all the way through. Have you noticed that he's talking about sin, 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 sin? So most people when they read this the first few times, we don't notice the righteousness of God bit. Mm. We notice the sin bit, right? I certainly for the first about three years of my walk, I was forced by the Holy Spirit to go to, to Romans and all I saw was sin mm. all the time. That's what I thought was, he was carrying on about. Sin, 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 sin. Because it's everywhere. And also he seems to be defining it. Like yes. It was fine when I didn't read it. But now, like, I know what it is. Did, did this happen to anybody else? Yeah. So sin is a major theme here. So we have the righteousness of God, grace, something about the gospel and sin. So now we've got to go back to the gospel of Messiah to figure out what's righteousness of God. And in the process, we're going to have to have a look at what sin is. Because if we're going to do a study about Romans, of Romans, it's a major theme. Okay, so what is sin? So most people go like, I don't have to worry about it because I've, all my sins have been forgiven. It's true. It's true. But today we're going to shatter that thought pattern. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Okay, now, last week we made the statement yeah. that although, it, has anybody thought about this through the week? I was, she said to me, I'd better send a <laughs> message because people will think that we are Her heretics. Heretics. Blaspheming against the sinless nature of the Son. We said that he, uh, although he had no sin, he died virtually unclean according to the law. Did anybody think about this? Mm. Did anyone feel outraged? Was it okay? So we're saying that Yahushua, when he died, was according to the law unclean, right? Now, what does that boil down to? If somebody dies being unclean, not continuing in the law, what do we call that? That's not rhetorical. Someone can answer. <laughs> Please, somebody answer. So what do we call that? Bible says that the law defines sin. In the book of Romans. So if the law was given so that we can identify what sin is, 
then if somebody dies unclean from, uh, or ritually unclean according to the law, then what do we call that? A sin. So now we have a problem. He was without sin, and yet it basically is defined that if you, if you have not continued in the law, if you're a lawbreaker, then you are a sinner. Now what? Okay, let's have a look at what it says. Okay, so just the question. If he was unclean according to the law, so he was sinless but unclean according to the law, how can you be, how could he be both? Okay, so keep that in Jeff mind. Jeff has got it. You got it. Okay, we're going we're gonna to give him, okay. He was going right into the back of his <laughs> mind. Into the spirit. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so take us there. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The bigger problem. Now he has become sin for us. So now it's not just that he was unclean, he has now become sin. But we also always knew that this, didn't we? He took the sins of the world on him. So, but how does he remain sinless and take all the sin of the world on him? Okay. Now, what's important in that verse? It's the first few words. He says. For he made him who knew no sin. Him who knew no sin. That's the important part. It's okay. Perfect. Very good. Very, very, very good. Well done. Sure. So that's it. Okay. Take us, listen to what this says, because now we're going to look at how wondrously this is actually proven. So take us to Isaiah. Okay. Isaiah 53. From verse ten. Isaiah fifty three. 
from verse 10. Okay, from verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge, my righteous servant So what Messiah had done, he did by his knowledge. And in it, the righteous servant justified many. By his knowledge. Now, who ever thought that this would be the secret to what Yahushua actually accomplished. Now we have actually taught on this many times in many ways. <coughs> so what is the consequence of this? And what's the application? What is it linked to for us? Take it anywhere. <laughs> Where do you want to take it? <laughs> Mind of Messiah. Can you do it now? I don't know. Do it. Should I read? Careful. Okay. Okay, but now should I just read the verse? Okay. One Corinthians chapter two, verse sixteen says Okay, I'll read the whole thing, but okay, for he for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Messiah. Okay, there's a process that's going to unfold now. A process that's got everything to do with our salvation, the gospel, and the righteousness of God. Okay, but first, I think you should just take us back and show us we just look at the Lamb of God, how it's important that He was becoming ritually unclean. Mm. Can you just take us through that process? Okay, we, so we've put this in place, that He did what He did by His knowledge. Shulani was correct that the important bit was that it was about Him not having sin in Him, so knowing the will of the Father. But, let's see how this all fits together. So the lamb was unclean. Why is this important? And why isn't it something that is emphasized? There's a reason why he had to become unclean. It's very important. You take us there. See the yeah. whole thing. Okay. Um, I just think it might be important to emphasize that it, it seems like an easy answer. Well, obviously, he was sinless because he did the will of the Father, so nothing else really matters. And yet, um, we don't want to just make it too easy because if he became ritually unclean according to the law, that's a very big deal. 
it's a very big deal that the father could still impute righteousness to him, judge him righteous, and resurrect him if he was unclean according to the law. So we are going to unpack all of this, but we don't want to just make it nothing because the understanding to the world, mostly, and even to some of us in certain ways in our mind, we think that God is going to judge us according to works on some level. But if he was still sinless, even though he was unclean according to the law and the father resurrected him, how does that change our positioning and our understanding? So we see. So we don't want to separate his judgment from our judgment and go like he had his own judgment and the father, obviously he was the son and the father loved him. So he still did as well. So he was judged righteous. But we somehow have a different standard of judgment coming our way. Makes sense. And there's, a, there's an excuse, a human excuse that goes with that. Where because we've been taught, well, he had no sin, that's why uh, he could be resurrected. Because he had no sin. Then we go like, well, what's our chances? We already have sin, so we're just glad that we have a free gift. But we always go like, well, it's different for him than for me. And that's that uh, excuse that we are systematically um, unraveling, taking it out of the way. Because, yes, he was sinless, but he died unclean according to the law. What made, what caused God not to judge him unrighteous if he was unclean according to the law? Do you see the application here? Because, because the law is still holy. Remember, we went through that whole process. The law is still God's word, God's commandments. Okay. okay. Let's see. Let's just see that he has actually died in a certain way. We'll unpack it. Okay. So, a few things to consider in terms of his uncleanness. So, first of all, I'm going to start in the easy place so um, you don't have to page there we're going to be paging around quite a bit but in John chapter 18 uh, just after he's been to the Sanhedrin to the high priest they take him to Pilate okay and then it says uh, chapter 18 verse 28 then they led Yahushua from Caiaphas to the praetorium which is the house where Pilate was living and it was early morning but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Okay. And then we see uh, that, ding, 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 ding. verse 33, it goes, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Yahushua, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So we see there's a, the Jews didn't want to enter because it would make them ritually unclean. They still had, it was the Passover time, but Yahushua did go in. So just according to that, there was already a defilement according to the law. A ritual uncleanness. Okay, then when we go to the end of Hebrews chapter 13, we know the scripture. There, from verse 10, it says, uh, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Yahushua also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. 
Okay, now, this wasn't just, this wasn't for every animal sacrifice that they ever brought, where the blood was brought and then the body had to be taken outside. This was, this is specifically referring to the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Okay, so let's go look at that fleetingly, Leviticus chapter 16, just to understand what happened. <clears throat> Okay, from verse 27. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Uh, then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. Okay, so we see... That the blood was, so the animal was brought to the altar, the blood was put in a bowl, then the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood for the unclean, but then the body of that animal, the bodies of the animals had to be taken outside the camp and be burned outside the camp. Okay, let's just look more at this. So let's go to verse, let's just read from verse 8 as well. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. Okay, just notice the wording here. It says, and Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell. I don't know if anyone's hearing this. The goat on which the Lord's lot fell. Now we have done prophetic unfolding and we've done prophetic foreshadowing. So something here is a foreshadowing of something that's going to happen later. But this clearly says the Lord's lot, the lot that belongs to the Lord, fell on the goat. So this would be more prophetic backshadowing. So that which belong to the Lord. So it's not that the goat, somehow what happened to the goat every year then became bigger and bigger until the Lord did it. What the Lord did was brought back and could be applied to the goat here and now, but it's the Lord's lot that fell on the goat. Am I making sense? Okay, so this is important. But now it says, uh, and offer it as a sin offering. Okay, so they bring the animals, the goat and the bull, to the altar. Then they get the blood from the animals. They go in. The blood itself is holy and is going to sprinkle the unclean. Okay. So the blood is good. But the animals' bodies now become the sin offering. So their bodies become unclean. And the bodies have to be taken outside the camp and burned outside the camp. That's why the hype that says, then... Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. Because the bodies have now become unclean. Okay. So, but when they choose the animals and bring them, what are they? Yes. Okay. So. Uh, okay, I don't know if it's in here. But remember, so when they choose what they're going to offer, the bull and the goat has to be... Uh, without blemish, without spot. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Without blemish, without spot. 
So perfect coming in, but defiled going out. Okay? Okay. But now we've seen interesting. So we can all obviously now start making this connection with the Lamb of God. But now we see an interesting dynamic because he is not only the sin offering, he is also the high priest. And this is where things become very interesting. So I'm going to take us, we read Galatians a few times the last few weeks. And there's one verse here in chapter 3 verse 20. It says, now a, me a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. A mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Okay, so what does that mean? What are we looking at? So Yahushua, in the flesh, is not only, we, we understand that he is the son of man, but he is also the son of God. So he, Yahushua HaMashiach, the son of God, has to come into the form of a man, become completely flesh entirely flesh but he is also still messiah so he is both he's not one then the other or one or the other he is both because in this form he can now mediate both for men and for god but he is one and somewhere in between this he has to walk this fine line of doing what he's going to do absolutely justly and fairly because he has to represent both in one Okay, so we just said, so he is not only now the sin offering, he is also the high priest. Okay, so let's look at this dynamic. So he's representing man whilst also representing God and mediating between the two. Imagine for a second the responsibility. And the possible temptation that goes with that. Yes, again the back shadowing and the foreshadowing. So we're always finding the important thing. So did you notice that Paul, um, referring to him being taken out of the camp, isn't just written, he's referring back to the substance of where it came from. And that was a foreshadowing of what Paul is writing about. Uh, same with, um, uh, what's the other one, oh, um, uh, when he quotes King David. Mm. Paul isn't just saying something, it's coming from somewhere. So now we see he judges, but he is also judged. Okay, so uh, j just take a moment on that reality while he's walking the earth. Of the responsibility, what, what it is that he has to accomplish. He cannot lean over to the one or the other side for a moment. He has to mediate justly and fairly. All the time. Okay. Okay. Okay, so we understand that he is sinless but unclean according to the law. We've established that part. But now the connection comes in when we see, when we read chapter 5 of Hebrews. Because now we obviously we have to start asking the question, but why, why this? Why does he have to become unclean? 
Why does he have to become unclean? If he is the Lamb of God and he is the mediator and he is going to die sinless because he has to be resurrected, why does he have to die unclean according to the law? Why is this important? Okay, when, 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 when is he going to receive all the sin of the world? Before or after death? So is he clean or unclean now? So, do we realize that he is going to receive all the sin of the world on him before he dies, when he says it's done? So, hanging on the cross, did he just receive into his body all the sin of the world? Okay, continue. Okay, so, Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> Let's read from verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered." And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay. So, I don't know if I should bring this in now. But, okay. So, we said, and Asulani also said, we understand that the Son of God walked out as he was mediating the will of the Father all the time and we understand from the will from the word of god from the beginning the plan of god was always for the son to become unclean according to the law to suffer for the <coughs> sins of the world to take all the sin of the world upon him die be resurrected this is the plan okay there's obviously much more to it but all right so that was the predetermined will of god and we understand that the son had to walk out the will of God. Okay, but now we see that a part of the will of God was in fact for the Son, because we saw this as well in Isaiah 53, is for the Son to become unclean, to go through the sufferings, take all the sin of the world upon Him, and through all of this we see He obtains perfection. He becomes perfected. Okay, but now I want to add to this. So now if we go back to the end of chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, it says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Okay. So if the, 
If Yahushua is going to walk out this road and become perfected, we understand that he walks out the will of God <coughs> entirely. But, like we said earlier, if he is going to mediate, then he has to be fully man and fully God. <coughs> Which means that he cannot only, he cannot lean over, like he said, to one side or the other for a moment. He has to be fully both justly and fairly. Okay. Which means that the temptations that's going to come with that has to be real as it is to us. Okay. So let's look at that for a moment. So the temptations of Joshua. So let's go to Matthew chapter 4 first. Okay, so I'm not going to read through everything. Verse 3, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Yahushua said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Yahushua said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. I'm thinking, let's do the rest first, and then we can point out what's happening. Okay, so the next one would be... Okay, important temptation, what is it? We're asking the question, what is sin? What is temptation? We can identify what temptation is and what sin is. We can figure out how to walk better through the day. Okay, because I understand. So the sufferings that he went through, obviously, obviously the crucifixion was bad. And I'm sure that receiving all the sins of the world on him was bad. But it's not like he, it could... He wouldn't have just walked an effortless life, not worrying about anything, and then get to all oh, this chaos when he has to die. Obviously, throughout his life, being the mediator, there's going to be, he has to walk out this road, because remember, he becomes the author and finisher of our faith. He determines this road of faith, and he determines the road of righteousness. So we're going to consider his entire road, and it says that he became a faithful high priest, because he was made in all things as we are, and... Page past it. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. So the suffering isn't just the whips and the nails in the hands and in the feet and hanging on the cross and suffocating. It's not that. It says, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Okay. 
So this is why we're looking at the temptations. So now we have the temptation of Satan. We're going to look at what that means. Now we see that, and I'm sure these are only a few that we're looking at today, but in John chapter 7, we see that actually his brothers, it says, After these things, Yahushua walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because of the Jews who sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Okay, but we see that even his brothers, um, what's the word? Challenge him. Going like, well, if you can do all these things, then, you know, show to the world your mighty power. Why don't you... Do something with what you have if you are this. Great. Okay, now I'm not going to label all of this, but we see there's a temptation coming from even from his brother's side, just in their challenge toward his positioning and towards his walk. Okay. Then next. Mm. Oh, am I in the wrong book? Yes, I am. Sorry. Let me just see here. It's this one. Ah, okay. Oh no, where is it? I've lost it. Where is it? What are you looking for? The pedo one. Where are you? Okay. <laughs> okay, just tell the story. Peter. Yes. Everybody knows the story of Peter. What does Peter say to the Lord when the Lord says he's going to die? And oh, I found it. I was at the right place. I just looked at the wrong side. Sorry. I looked at the wrong side of the page. Okay, okay I got it. it. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. From that time, this is Matthew chapter 16. I was in Matthew chapter 17. Okay. From that time, Yahushua began to show his disciples, from verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, okay, we think ridiculous, Peter. He's just been prophesying the plan and you go like, but obviously Peter's been walking with him for a few years. They love him. And now, he's, now the Lord is saying to them, well, he has to die. He has to suffer many things, then die. Obviously, this is horrible news to Peter. Imagine your best friend saying, well, you know, soon they'll kill me. And he knows the power that the Lord has. He's, had the, he's just had the revelation of Messiah. And now he's going, Lord, surely no, you, you cannot die. This cannot happen to you. Like, please, calm down. And the Lord says to him, it says, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Shame for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And now we start getting to it. Okay. So we had the temptation in the wilderness. We saw his brothers. And now we see here the thing with Peter. So what happens Yahushua understands that there's one road of faith for him to walk out. 
He has to mediate, he has to author and finish this road of righteousness, not veering to the left or to the right. We know that he says he only does what he sees the Father do and only speaks what he hears the Father say. But now we see that along his road, there are these incidents that we now call temptations. Okay, But when we think of temptation, we usually think of it as, oh, if Satan is tempting me, then it's to do this sin or to do this wrong thing or to do that wrong thing. But in essence, what is he being tempted with? You can answer. To be out of the will of the Father. Now, this is this sounds like a very obvious. Yes, obviously, being tempted is, you know, would be to to not do the will of the Father. But we're going to turn it around a bit today and say that yes, it's true. The temptation will be to not do the will of the Father. But together with that, equal truth is then if not the will of the Father then it would, and I'm not going to owe the will of Satan, this would just be the will of self or the will of someone else. So for instance, Peter. It sounds like a reasonable thing for Peter to say, Lord, I love you, please, no, you can't die. But this is directly against the will of God. So even if the Lord had fallen for this temptation, then it would be to do the will of Peter and not the will of God. When Satan tempted him, it wasn't for him to just do the will of Satan, it would just be to not do the will of God. But, so we want to define it in this way, that the temptation is not to just keep doing the will of God, it would be to resist the will of self or someone else, anyone else, except God. Okay, and we see this coming to a high point. In Matthew chapter 26, from verse 36. Then Yahushua came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to, this, to the disciples, sit while I go pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, yours be done. <clears throat> and I think it's just wonderful, obviously it could only be God, that this final temptation, this final overcoming and the final victory in this case, happens in a garden. When we see that the very first temptation 
So by one man, death entered, and by one man, one man, one man. Exactly, first Adam, second Adam. And we see that they both faced the same thing. So we know that Eve was tempted by Satan, and she took the fruit. But we see that Adam, Adam wasn't tempted by Satan. So his intention might not have been to stop doing the will of God, but he heeded the will of his wife, which took him out of the plan of God and thereby sin entered. So there was no law defined. The law of Moses was not there. And yet he moved outside of the will of God. Sin entered, death entered, and all died. And then Yahushua we see in a garden obtains the ultimate victory when he overcomes temptation. So he is about to take all of the sin of the world into his own flesh. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. Can you show that sin was in the world? Yes. Listen to this. This, this helps us understand the picture. What, obviously what we are ministering into, you might say, well, some of these things we know, we have done the work and we have arrived at the place of freedom when we no longer have a, any form of having to do this or that right thing and not having to do this or that. Uh, that little list is gone from our minds. Then we have achieved what we want to achieve. And then, because of grace, we do not continue in sin. We can continue in the way of God. So please pay attention to these little details. This is in the little details that the big revelations lie. Okay. So in Romans chapter 5, from verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, I says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And now we think, well, how does this work? How can there be sin in the world? The law isn't there, so sin's not defined, sin's not imputed. But maybe that's not what he's saying. Maybe he's saying, sin is not imputed when there is no law, but until the law, sin was in the world. So maybe he's not saying, so even though he says the law that we know as the law of Moses came later, but he says, death reigned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So the law of Moses came later, yet sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. So what happened? How can death reign and sin be in the world without law? So we know that the law of Moses came later, but there had to be something until Moses came because death still reigned and sin was in the world. What are we looking at? Is it logical? Like, am I making sense? It's a, it's a reasonable question to ask. Do you want to explain? No, you explain. Uh, please explain. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing all the talking. <laughs> it's fine. I'm enjoying it. 
So sin was in the world even before there was law. Now we know that sin is defined. The Bible in Romans it says very clearly that sin had to be if sin was given because of transgressions. In Galatians, yeah. Galatians. So there was not. It's, it's, so law is given because of trans, transgression. So the law doesn't come and say this is what is wrong. If you do this, you transgress. The law was going to come and define and identify the, the, the transgression that was already taking place. Yeah. Now, there can't be transgression if there's no law. Yet the law was given because there was already transgression. Now, again, we're back at the question, what is sin then? What is the transgression? Because it clearly says that if there's no law, there's no transgression. But now it says that the law was given because of the transgression. Says that the law was already, or the uh, sin was already in the world. Now, if we don't page there, I'm just going to read it to you. Um, it says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, it says, If Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Okay. So, we thought, we just said, that when he died and he shed his blood, then sin was washed away. Now, he's, Paul is saying, if Messiah is not risen, then you are still in your sins. So, in actuality, it's his resurrection that takes care of sin. Not his death. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Now, backtrack. If sin was already in the world, but law was not yet given, because the law was later given because of the transgressions, the transgressions had now had to be defined. It was already in existence, but it cannot be called sin because it has not been defined by the law, but it's transgression. Okay, this is where it, what he's writing there goes back to this. Sin existed in the world. Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is here, on earth. It just has nothing to do with Adam and Eve at that point. So there's no sin yet, but sin exists. The tree, the is, tree there. is there. So remember, they are eating from the tree of life. The only thing they know is God. The moment they eat from the tree, now they have knowledge of good and evil, which means now they no longer only know God. They but, know something. But it's important to understand that before there was transgression, sin already exists. It has form. It's defined. Knowledge of good and evil. Like the law. There it is. And it's of no importance whatsoever. Sin is of no importance because Adam is going about his day, walking with God, walking in the will of God, whatever that might be. It doesn't have to be defined either. He's just not going to pursue his own will or the will of another. But his wife comes and he responds to her will. Even for she her. responded to her own will. Okay, 
So now we have a workable definition for sin. So the tree, there was no law yet given. All God said is avoid the tree. It's not a law, it's just a commandment. So because there's no law yet, sin isn't defined yet. There is no sin, but sin exists. God's commandment was you don't need to know about it. got nothing to do with you, Adam. I'm not going to explain this. <laughs> Leave it be. Leave it alone. This is very important because this gives us an insight into God's heart. Remember we spoke about the judgment that God is not going to prove himself righteous by proving everybody else wrong. It was never his heart or his intention. He's going to prove his righteousness in another way. Now, I think you can take us straight to, to what actually happened. Yeah. Okay. What happened on the cross? Because if he was not resurrected, if he's not resurrected, then it says we're still in our sin. So even after he died, or even after he took all the sin of the world on himself, that's still not freeing us from sin. This shows that it works. Okay. So... Now we've looked at a bunch of things. So he was unclean according to the law, but sinless. And we understand that he obtained perfection because he went through the sufferings and stuck to the will of God. But if we just, what we've just defined, the temptation. So it starts, we started out with reading, him, he made him who knew no sin. Okay. So... First Adam, second Adam, the thing that happened was all about what they knew. So Yahushua only knew God. He knew no sin. So it's like Adam. Adam, there's the tree. You just don't worry about the tree. You just stay away from the tree. So Yahushua knew no sin. In his mind was not the knowledge of good and evil. It didn't matter. He only knew God. That's all he knew. That's all he was concerned about. Only doing the will of the Father. So it's not that he just did the will of the Father according to the plan. It's that he knew nothing else. There wasn't a consideration of right or wrong. There was only the consideration of all that God is. That's what he knew. He knew no sin. And we see throughout his walk these temptations come up. But it's not just the temptation to stop doing the will of God. It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced is to do the will of another which would move you out of knowing only God. Okay. And then we see through all of this, he still obtains perfection. So now, but this is very important. So why does he become, why is it important that he become ritually unclean, that he die unclean according to the law? And how is it that he still can remain sinless so that the Father, and we'll get to the rest, so that resurrection can ensue? Why is it important? Because if he does not somehow gain access into the law, then the law would continue and he would just die separate from the law and the law would still be in place. So this is like a matrix kind of thing that's happening here. He has to somehow gain entrance into the law so that he can 
Because it says Messiah becomes the end of the law. Right? In Corinthians, we read that. So he has to somehow gain entrance into the law so that he can end the law. Not only fulfill the law, but end the law. So that they can be, because it says also in Hebrews that new law. New high priest, new law. All of that. Okay, we're not going to go... Not a new law, new covenant. New covenant. Yeah. Okay, but it actually does, it does say... For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Change of the law. A change of the law. Okay, not a new law, a change of the law. Okay. Okay. But, but, this is the really amazing thing. So, because he overcomes temptation, he does not enter into the knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't eat from the tree. He doesn't eat the fruit. He can still become unclean according to the law, but it's not going to affect what he knows. He's not eating the fruit. So he, re he remains sinless because he overcame the temptation, and yet he still becomes unclean according to the law, which gives his flesh access, and yet his spirit remains pure. If I can put it that way. Is this making sense? This is amazing. Like, God's plan is amazing, okay? This is like, okay. So, into the law, unclean according to the law, because now we see, okay, so now he's going to die. Now it's the whole, which we looked at, the sin offering, okay? He's going to become unclean. He's going to take all the sin of the world, all the sin of the world as high priest, going to take all of that into him as the sin offering of God, okay? The, the Lord's lot. There he goes, onto the cross, takes all of the sin of the world into his flesh. Now this body is full of sin. Dies, goes into the grave. There it is. But now, because he is still sinless and he is the high priest, Melchizedek, he enters into the Holy of Holies with his blood. And because he is spotless, without blemish, he brings his blood, sprinkling the unclean and his offering is accepted by God and he washes away all sin. His blood washes away all sin for all time, for all eternity, for all peoples and nations, all sin forever and ever. And the sacrifice is accepted and it's gone. So now there he is the high priest in the heavenlies and he's just washed away all sin and his body is in the grave. And on this fleshly body was all the sin of the world. But once all the sin is washed away, what happens to his body? Can the sin of the world remain on a body if all the sin has been washed away? So now he pays the ultimate price for all sin and all of the sin is washed away. And then he has the authority and the power and the right to come back for his body. So he comes back for his body, but his body is now washed clean of all sin for all time. And he doesn't then come back for the entire world. He comes back for his body. And now we go to the end of 1 Corinthians where it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Okay, now this is also important. So he dies, his body dies, 
as a fleshly body. All the sin of the world is put into the flesh and the flesh is put into the grave. But once all of the sin is washed away and he comes back for his body, what is his body? Can it still be the fleshly body creation? Where does it say? It says, so for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In the moments when the body is lying in the grave, that body is literally containing the sin of the world, the flesh. Representing man, mediator between man and God. So as man, although he didn't sin, he did not escape sin, he took all sin on him. What is the power by which he overcame sin? What was the power? What was it that enabled him, although all the sin was in his body, and he died according to the law unclean? What was the thing, the factor? when he had to go into judgment, because that's what happened. He walked in with his sacrifice and he had to be judged. His sacrifice is accepted because of what he knew. Everything that he knew was weighed, was judged, and there was found no sin in him. There was found in his knowledge nothing except the knowledge of God. This is what he, this is what he protected. Not, not the rest, just this. This is what he protected. What he knew. So, if a person with the knowledge of good and bad had to face the sin of the world, the sin would corrupt them. Even if up until that point they were sinless, if they had the knowledge in their mind of what is good or, or bad, right or wrong, sin would corrupt them. And sin could not corrupt them. So the light came into the world and the darkness could not comprehend it. Or overcome it. So just back to Isaiah 53 that we read, the second part of verse 11 says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge. Read the part where we shall see his, his seed. So remember the flesh that's sown in corruption. The seed was sown in corruption. The Lord sowed his seed on earth and allowed the seed, allowed the seed to become corrupt. 
but it was raised in incorruption. Still God's seed. Read it. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his seed and prolong his days. There's the resurrection. So he looked at... so. The high priest enters into judgment. Yeshua enters into judgment. And the Father considers him, and in him is found no sin, because he knows only God. That which God breathed into Adam's nostrils, we've been saying, is the seed, but it is God. So God considers this mediator who knows no sin, he only knows God, and in him is only his own seed. So now let's look at the righteousness of God. Because in the gospel of Messiah, this was the gospel of Messiah, is the righteousness of God revealed. So according to Romans chapter 11 verse 8, grace cancels out works, and works cancels out grace. Eh? Six. Six. What did I say? Eight. Ah, don't know where that came from. Grace cancels out works, and works cancels out grace. Full measures. What is grace that cancels out works? There now remains no sin offering. So he put all sin in his flesh. And when his offering was accepted, he came back to come fetch himself out of the grave. He came back for his body. That body was now clean. He could take it into resurrection. What is left over? Grace cancels out works. There's no more works to be done. But what then? What do we do? With our faith. What is the faith walk then if there's no more works? Because if there's works, it cancels out grace. Death cancels out, cancels out life. Death cancels out life. And life cancels out death. And yet, by his resurrection, he cancelled out death completely. Right. This is proven there. Now the question is, does blessing cancel out curse, and does curse cancel out blessing? Yes. So if he became a curse for us, and the blessedness of Abraham came upon us, was curse cancelled? So if we see curse instead of blessing, then what does that mean? Somehow, we managed to cancel out the blessing so that we could step back into curse. This is where we get to the answer about sin. What is sin and what is temptation? <coughs> does the spirit cancel out the flesh? And does the flesh cancel out the spirit? Walk, into, walk in the spirit. You sows to the flesh. Those scriptures you all know. 
Okay, so the one cancels out the other. Where did he put this in? Now we can go to Romans chapter 7, please. So all the, everything that's written in Romans regarding sin and what if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, then in his heart, his own conscience will either condemn him or excuse him. Right? Keep that in mind. Um... Yeah. Okay. Let me turn it off. Yeah. Okay. Romans chapter 7, we're going to read from verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members." O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Yahushua HaMashiach our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yahushua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yahushua has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he became unclean, according to the law, but declared righteous because he continued in the will of the Father. So what happened is he had to be born into the law. He had to come to a place where he could no longer continue in the law. By circumstance, not by his own sin, 
he could not continue in the law. He gave us a picture of that. Starts off with God's law until because of his coming, they could no longer continue in the law. And now we're continuing in the rest of it. What is this? This is spirit, New Testament they call it. He gave us the picture. So what that, all of that complication says is we're right back in the garden. So he pays the price for sin. In doing so, he puts the, the sin in the flesh. And just like God responded to Adam when there was no law, said, just have nothing to do with it. So sin is in the flesh. It's not gone. Have we noticed? He actually says that there's a law. The law of sin in the flesh. So while this thing is still with us, it's the same as the flesh in, in the grave. But in the spirit, is in the presence of God, blameless. So this is our state of being. This is how to understand this. Temptation is only going to be this. Temptation will be any circumstance, any object, any idea, any philosophy, any passion, any person that will invite you to do their will. It doesn't have to be evil, because remember, we're not supposed to have the knowledge of good and evil. We're not supposed to decide, is it good or is it bad? All we care about, is it the will of God? This is very important. Don't think that you understand this. Don't think you've heard this before. So, we have to learn from what he knew. What is, you, what is the fact, what is it actually saying when we have the mind of Messiah? No knowledge of good and evil. It's not for me to decide if it's good or bad. It can be a philosophy, political uh, inspiration, economical inspiration. It can be a good thing. People can be busy feeding the poor and be transgressing because they're doing it out of the flesh. Okay. He faces judgment and his knowledge is found to be poor, pure. Pure. What happens every time a person is baptized? All the sin is put into the flesh. And just like he came back for his body, the Holy Spirit returns like he returned. That's what we call baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit. We're not baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are immersed in the Spirit. He comes back for his body. And we are raised spiritual and corruptible. So every time someone is baptized, that is him returning for his body. His spotless, sinless body.
So why do, uh, why do we see the opposite evidence in people? Because we don't understand. Can you read, they sought uh, it, but not knowing the righteousness of God. We need to put that in place. Just pay attention to this one last little bit, and then we'll finish up. Romans chapter 10. This is why, this is how this study originated. This was the revelation, the righteousness of God that uh, inspired us to know that sometime we're going to have to do a, a study on Romans. This is the reason why we're doing this study. Okay, from verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, the righteousness of God. They sought it but not according to knowledge. You want to know the righteousness of God? It's called election. The most offending of all the truths of the Bible. It's not that simple. They sought God's righteousness, the Jews, but not according to knowledge. Why? This is what it boils down to. This is righteousness. This is righteousness. And this is the righteousness of God. God started something. He defined it, communicated it, and He will finish it no matter what. We know righteousness is a straight path, straight road, from point A to point B. From point A to point B. And... Uh, on Judgment Day, it won't be the question won't be if God did right or wrong, good or bad. The question is, did God do what He said He was going to do? Did He do it the way He said He was going to do it? Did God veer off the road that He predetermined for a second? For a centimeter, did he ever veer off his will? No. That's the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is simply God expressed what he was going to do and how. That is why we're always highlighting the prophetic unfolding. That's the righteousness of God. When we show that what is said here was said there, what is done here was done there, what is done there is fulfilled here. When we show that, we show the righteousness of God. So see, the righteousness of Messiah was simply this. He did what the Father determined to be done in exactly the same way and it's all he knew. He didn't allow another option, another possibility to enter his mind 
Why is the gospel foolishness to those that are perishing? Because we cannot imagine that this is how God is going to reveal His righteousness. Judgment. He's just showing us that when He decides to do something, that's what is going to be done. For some reason, everybody thinks that, yes, they understand that about God, but nobody wants that about God. So, what God has determined is right, and it will be done. What happens when we conform our minds to that truth? Not going to allow another consideration or possibility to be brought to us by circumstance, by people or by things, or by self. What happens when we actually learn to walk in that way? See, he had already become unclean. When is the easiest time to compromise on the will of God? When you've already made a mistake. So now, while he was continuing in the law, he could stand on the law. Because he was sinless. It's said very clearly, blameless and sinless. There is a righteousness that comes by the law. The Bible says the righteousness that comes by the law. So there's a righteousness that comes by the law, but not a justification that can come by the law. Because justification, justification only comes by God's perfect will. And it will only come by those who perceive His will, receives the revelation of His will, and responds in His will, or to His will by faith. What is that? Straight road. Faith and righteousness, same thing. Now, what is temptation then? And what is sin then? Because he cancelled the law. He fulfilled the law. He's the end of the law to those who believe. So we've got to take out of this teaching, this consciousness, that sin is put in the flesh. You cannot veer into the flesh without going into the realm of sin. There's nothing good in the flesh. Does the Bible say that? Nothing good. If you meet someone that's not walking by the Spirit, there's nothing good in them. So, the moment that you meet someone that's not walking by the Spirit, you have encountered temptation. The moment that you, walking with someone else, are not walking in the Spirit, you have become temptation. The moment we make an agreement not to do the exact full will of God, the moment we make that agreement with someone else, you have become their temptation and death. And they have become yours. Okay, so. Can the fruit or the outcome of going into the flesh ever be different? Because curse cancels out blessing. Blessing cancels out curse. 
death cancels out, life, life cancels out, death. Spirit cancels out flesh. But flesh cancels out spirit. So this is what he protected. It's all he knew was the will of God. And he knows all things. So although he perceived evil, understood evil, the darkness did not overcome him. The light came into the world, and the darkness did not overcome him. Who lifts the veil from the bride's countenance? Who is the one that lifts the veil so the eyes can be seen? The bridegroom. So if the law is the veil, who's the one that comes to help us to not look unto the law anymore? We can't learn not to do it. So he comes and he reveals, he opens our eyes so that we can see. But go back into the flesh, the law returns. The law returns. What we know to say? She wants to finish the list of scriptures. You can take us to Revelation, please. Okay. Hmm. Maybe I'll sing the list of scriptures that everyone can read. Okay. Revelation chapter 22 from verse 18 to the end. Keep in mind the righteousness of God. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Yahushua. The grace of our Lord Yahushua HaMashiach be with you all. Amen. That's how you know. Who the believer is. When he says, I'm coming quickly, the believer says, Even so, Lord, come. Because we only know his will to be good. The unbeliever says, Tarry for another day. For I have someone to go greet or something to go do, something else that's important. Somewhere in our hearts, 
the unbelievable say, no, what about my children? What about my future? What about... So even people that say they want him to return, if they're not a true believer, they don't want him to return now. Just not now. Simple. So he sums everything up in the last words. He says, add anything to the will of God and you've transgressed. Take anything away from the will of God and you've trans transgressed. It's the mind of Messiah. It's his righteousness. So what does it mean that when we responded in faith, he added righteousness to us? means he added the ability and the willingness and the promise and the power <coughs> to walk his will out perfectly. Colossians. It's like this one tunnel. So faith, he shows us the road. He shows us that he is going to do what he does. And a believer responding to that, it places you on the road that is not going to differ. And while on that road, grace is going to keep you on that road. So everything is lining up to the one perfect will of God. So then sin, Elijah, because he is the end of the law, sin is no longer in the thing you do wrong. The thing we do wrong is going to cause us to veer off the road that he have, has created in his perfect will. That's why it is a transgression. So iniquity is not the thing that was done. It's the consequence of the thing that was done. So you start off outside the will of God. You're probably going to have to continue for a while. So doing anything else but His will, so your own will will cancel out His will, and His will will cancel out your will. There's no getting around death, life, light, darkness, His will, your will. Becomes pretty glaringly clear. Okay, so, if we willingly decide to do our own will and not His will, Perfect will. What have we done? What does it mean when the Bible speaks about those who continue in faith? If you continue in faith. So it's always this little add-on. doesn't look like much. If you continue in faith. So they had to continue in the law. The moment that you did not continue in the law, you didn't have to break the law, you just didn't have to continue in the law. And then you broke the law. You see how this fits together? It's very important to get this. You don't have to go do anything wrong. Sin is not doing the will of God. Because that's it. Sin is not doing the will of God. It sounds logical. Many people will say it, but they don't understand what it means. 
So by doing nothing, one can actually cancel out by effect everything that is done for you. And we don't know about salvation because salvation, the life here is the proof of the salvation there. The mm -hmm. circumcision was the seal mm -hmm. of oh, what had, had been received. So, what is a believer and what is an unbeliever? person can read the Bible, go to church, try and do the right thing and be an unbeliever because they're not seeking to do the will of God. Because mm -hmm. I think the will of God is to do, to do religious acts. That's what he's trying to say. We're basically summing up what he's trying to say in Romans. He says, when an uncircumcised man does the, fulfills the righteous requirements of the law in his heart. Mm -hmm. See, that's what it's trying to say. Can okay. I please read these two scriptures? Yes. Okay. The one is in James chapter 1. I might only read this one, but this is, I want to read this one. Okay. From verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, obviously, you need to listen to this according to what we just did. So, okay. This is, obviously, then God cannot be tempted, because if temptation is not doing the will of God, then it is God cannot be tempted. Okay? And he is not going to tempt you. God isn't going to go like, well, maybe you don't want to do my will. <laughs> do you? You know? Okay. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Which is basically a summary of what we did today. <coughs> so if righteousness, the righteousness of Messiah was to walk a straight road, because yeah, and only here is salvation. Hmm. Actually, in if you order, go read about salvation, it's the process of salvation. And once you get to the end, then ta-da, salvation. The only way to get to this little point is by staying on this straight road. That leads where? Somewhere else. Not salvation. So now salvation becomes the doing the will of God. That's why we don't believe in a moment of being saved. Because being saved is Him, by His indwelling Spirit, leading us to walk on the straight road that ends in salvation. 
So there's a destiny, there's an end result that can only be achieved by walking on a straight road that is predetermined by Him. And that is why we say that if a person hears the truth, for instance, let's pick one, uh, baptism. A person that is himself baptized but says, yes, there's a chance that the person that was baptized as a baby and not baptized again, the person that says there's a chance that person might be saved, have themselves veered off the road and has become unrighteous. And it would be um, a sign of perdition. So the person that is not willing to get baptized, we consider to be unsaved. And the person that agrees in principle with the possibility that there's still salvation for that person, he's also unsaved and not a believer. So we don't consider that person to be a believer either. Harsh. Why can we say that? Because God himself is going to establishes in his word that his righteousness is, he's going to do things exactly the way he said it. No variation. Anybody that allows for a variation is an unbeliever. So just take a moment. Could there be any doubt that this is what we just looked at in the word? So variations on the true gospel of Messiah that reveals the righteousness of God is a sign of unbelief, which means it's a sign of no salvation. Hectic. Okay, that's about it. If you change one thing, where will you stop and where will you stop? You won't make it. It's a sign that you didn't make it. But if you change this thing, then you have to change yeah, that thing. Then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And remember that what he does, if we respond in true faith, he he verifies the faith by by giving, imputing righteousness. And righteousness is what the straight road. So he gives the straight road as confirmation that your faith was acceptable. Mm. So a person that's not walking the straight road, it's confirmation that their faith was not faith. It's, it's undeniable evidence. So sometimes we'll encounter someone that didn't know, so there was ignorance, or they were subject to other information. And when you do present them with what the Word actually says, and they choose not to respond to it. So they're going like, I don't know what to do with this. That's a sign that you're not speaking to a believer. They can show all the other things, but they're not a believer. So now we have an asset test for what believer, who is a believer, what is faith? Righteousness. So the righteousness for us cannot be different from the righteousness of God. Now that we have discovered what his, the righteousness of God is, we have a standard. Okay, amen. <laughs>